we continue on in the book of Colossians tonight, we'll be in uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses, verses 15 through 20. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. Now, as we've been working our way through these opening verses of Colossians, we've seen how Paul has given thanks for these Christians in Colossae and how he has prayed for them, made requests for them that are pertinent in regard to their living of the Christian life. We saw last week in verses 12 through 14 how Paul had given thanks to God the Father for the great redemption that is ours in Christ, that we have the forgiveness of sins in Christ, that the Father has qualified us to receive a share in the inheritance of the saints in light, that he has rescued us from the authority, the domain, dominion of darkness, and has transferred us to a new realm, namely the kingdom of Christ. And this is wonderful, and this is the gospel. And here... In our text for tonight, verses 15 through 20, he continues speaking of God's beloved Son and praising Christ and showing us the glories of Christ. So let's look there to what Paul says beginning in verse six, uh, verse 15 down through 20. He writes under the inspiration of the Spirit and says, He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And so Paul here speaks of the glories of Christ. And this is important given the situation of the Colossians, because the Colossians were in a situation where there were evidently false teachers who were coming in seeking to divert their attention from Christ and to point them away from Christ. And Paul points them back to Christ. And again, as we've Considered briefly in the past, the situation here in Colossae seems to have been some kind of thing that we would refer to today as a agnostic heresy. That is to say, it seems to have been some kind of teaching that laid great stress on some secret or, or esoteric knowledge. As you see in chapter 2, verses 16 through 19, Paul warns them against anyone who would come to them and would seek to defraud them and go into great length about angels or visions that they had had or, or something of, to that effect. And, in connection with this, there seems to have been a certain ceremonial sensitivity, some importations from, from Judaism, a morality uh, that laid great stress on the Old Testament festivals and the new moons and Sabbath days and so on, the shadows of the reality that has come to pass in Christ. And, and so in light of all of these things, and in addition to that, uh, Paul 
in uh, chapter 2, verse 8, warns them against those who would, would come and seek to take them captive through philosophy. Philosophy that's founded on something other than Christ. And so Paul's seeking to neutralize all of this by pointing out to them the glories of Christ, pointing them back to the foundation. As the church historian Philip Schaff put it, Paul refutes this false philosophy calmly and respectably by the true doctrine of the person of Christ and the one mediator between God and men in whom dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So against all of the false philosophy and false reasoning, Paul points them back to Christ, back specifically here to the glories of Christ. And so let's just walk through these verses and see these glories as they are laid out for us. Paul begins in verse 15 by showing us who Jesus Christ is within the Godhead, his relationship with God the Father. Namely, he is the image of the invisible God, the person of of the Son of God being eternally begotten by God the Father, has received in that eternal generation the same essence of the Father, communicated to him by the Father, such that the Son is is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, as the church has historically confessed in the Nicene Creed. Or as we see here, he is the image of the invisible God. Or to use the language of Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of his glory, and the exact representation of his nature. That is, the Son of God is the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact representation of the Father's nature, because their nature is one. As such, it was through the person of the Son, the image of the invisible God, the Son of God, that God revealed himself and appeared to mankind. Think, think John 1.18 that no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. This is certainly true in the, in the incarnation, that the Son of God became man, and those who were with him saw him. I think First John chapter 1, the, the tangibility, that that which was from the beginning, what we have seen and heard, what we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, they were there with Christ in and beheld his incarnation. And it also seems reasonable, given the invisibility of God the Father, that he is the invisible God, and that no one has seen God the Father at any time, that when we read of God appearing in the Old Testament time, that it was actually the pre-incarnate Son of God. Uh, One theologian spoke of, of the Son of God in the Old Testament time giving a prelude to his incarnation. Just think of the appearances to, to Abraham, the appearances that we see sometimes, say, in the book of Judges and, and other places where, uh, where God is said to be there, where we see that it is the Lord, it seems, seems likely that it is, in fact, this image of the invisible God, the Son of God himself who was appearing there. And Paul also describes him as the firstborn of all creation. When you and I use the word firstborn, In regard to our children who were born to us, the meaning is, of course, clear and easy. And so if I were to say my older brother is the firstborn son of my father, you would understand that I'm saying that my older brother 
is the first son or the first child who was born to my father. And so he is. But when we see this term used, it is not always used in such a straightforward and literal way. It certainly can be used in that literal sense, denoting the first child who is born to a person, and usually accompanying this are certain privileges and so on. But in the scriptures, it can also be used figuratively. And so, uh, notably, you have Job 18.13, where Bildad speaks of the firstborn of death devouring the limbs of the wicked. Firstborn of death is clearly a a figurative expression, not a, a literal expression. Death, literally speaking, gives birth to no one. Likewise, the Lord's command to Moses in Exodus 4.22 when he was told to go and say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. In that sense, the firstborn is the one who has the pride of place or the first position, the one who is preeminent one. And it is in that sense of preeminent one that we find it used in that messianic psalm that we read at the beginning tonight, Psalm 89, where in Psalm 89.27, the Lord says, I shall also make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And while in a sense Israel was the firstborn of the Lord, and in another sense I think we could say that King David was the firstborn of the Lord in the sense of having a certain pride of place and preeminence, Israel and David were only preeminent to a certain degree. But on the contrary, Jesus Christ is preeminent in every regard. He is the firstborn of all creation. That is to say, he is supreme over all of creation. And therefore, it's not surprising to see what comes next in verses 16 and 17, that he is the creator of all, that he is before all, that he is the one who sustains all. Paul says, for by him all things were created. Again, think back to John 1. This is the truth of John 1, 3, that all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. The Son of God is the creator of all that is. And then Paul here breaks that down into different categories. He speaks of things that are in the heavens and on the earth. All of it is made by Christ. Heavens, this expression, the heavens and the earth, is sometimes used as a a shorthand for uh, a shorthand expression for all that exists. And all that exists, whether it is in the heavens or on earth, was made by Christ. He also breaks things down into visible and invisible. Some things are visible such that we can see them. Some things are invisible such that we are unable to see them, whether that be molecules of air that that are clear and we can't see them with our eyes, or whether it be things of the nature of the human soul or the beings of the angelic realm who function mostly as invisible. Whether you can see it or not, it was made by Jesus Christ. And then what follows there in verse 16, the thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities has has reference to the angelic realm. It has unfortunately been the case sometimes that Theologians will seize on these these different names and elaborate more fully about these things than can be proved from, from Scripture. One writer said that they would elaborate on these things in such a way as it appeared that they themselves had lived in heaven and had come to know their polity precisely or something to that effect. I think I would incline more toward the opinion of Augustine who said, what is the 
actual distinction between these titles, let those say who can. At the same time, let them prove what they say. For myself, I am content to confess my ignorance of them. I think we can, we can hold kind of loosely on what these distinctions actually are between thrones, powers, rulers, and authorities. This is, this is the angelic realm. Christ made it all. Christ is supreme. That's, that's the point here. And this is uh, the same sentiment that is continued on in verse 17 as well, that Christ is before all things. He is before all things with respect to time in that Christ is eternal, and he is before all things with respect to dignity and honor. He's before all things. And in him, all things hold together. The alternative expression for this truth is that which is found in Hebrews 1.3, where it is said that the Son of God upholds all things by the word of his power. The created order itself is sustained continually by the creator. If it were not, it would fade away into nothingness. It would ebb and flow away into non-existence. Christ not only is the creator, he is the sustainer, the upholder, of all that is. And having seen then the relationship of the Son of God to the Father in verse 15 and the relationship of the Son of God to creation in verses 16 and 17, Paul then shifts in verse 18 to showing Christ's relationship to the new creation. And so he says he is also the head of the body, the church. Christ's church is his people who are his body, his bride, and he is the head of that body. He is the head of that bride. He is the supreme authority, and he rules us and guides us and directs us, and the means by which he does that is by his word and by his Holy Spirit. Jesus' own stance on scripture is that which he expressed in John ten thirty five when he said, the scripture cannot be broken. And that which he said in John seventeen seventeen, when he said, your word is truth. And he has sent the spirit to, to guide us into truth, to convict us of the truth, and to apply the truth to our hearts and lives. Christ is our authority, and Christ works that authority by means of his word and spirit. And though Christ has certainly delegated authority within the church, first to his apostles and later to, to elders, pastors in the church, Nevertheless, neither apostles nor elders are the head of the church. Christ alone is the head of the church, the head of the body. He is the head of his bride. And this next expression that Christ is the beginning could be perhaps a a reference to the, again, to the eternal nature of the Son of God or... Uh, perhaps this phrase uh, could be connected with what follows, namely the, the, the truth that Christ is the firstborn from the dead, in the sense that Christ is the beginning of the, the new creation because he is the firstborn from the dead. And with respect to that expression, Jesus being the firstborn of the dead, Jesus is the firstborn of the dead in the sense that he is the first of those who have been raised from the dead who will never die again. Now, if you read through the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, certainly you will read of the resurrection of other people who were raised from the dead before Jesus was raised from the dead. 
But all of the others, either those who were raised by the Old Testament prophets or those who were raised in the New Testament by Jesus himself, all of them went on to die again one day. But Jesus is the first of those who was raised with a glorified body. He is, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, the first fruits of those who fall asleep. And more than simply being the first of those who, who will be raised, first with respect to time, again, we have this expression, the firstborn, the preeminent one. He is the preeminent one of those who are raised from the dead. He alone is himself the resurrection and the life. He alone had the power to raise himself from the dead and did raise himself from the dead. Jesus alone has the power of an indestructible life. And Paul speaks of him in Romans 6, 9 through 10, by saying that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Or as Jesus himself put it in Revelation 1, 18, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. And in having that, he has the first place in everything. Jesus is first all across the board. The supremacy of Christ is seen even further than in what follows in verses 19 and 20. That it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now, in regard to this expression of the, the fullness dwelling in Christ, some would take the expression here in reference to the, the fullness of deity dwelling in Christ. Others would, would understand it here with respect to the fullness of grace or the fullness of glory within Christ, which flows from him then to those who belong to him. And both of those things are true in their way. The fullness of deity dwells in Christ bodily, as Paul goes on to say here in Colossians 2, verse 9. And that there is fullness of grace and glory and good things in Christ is certain on the basis of John 1, 16, where we read that of his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Out of the fullness which is in Christ, he communicated to his own grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And while I might incline toward the, the second of, of those as being the truth that Paul intends to convey here, uh, nevertheless, both, both are true in their way. The fullness of deity dwells bodily in Christ. Christ is full of truth and grace and glory, which he conveys to those who are his own. And then to round off this list of the glories of Christ that show his supremacy, we see in verse 20 how Jesus reconciles all things to God the Father, things that are in heaven or on earth. Now, in saying this, we need to be clear up front that this is not a statement of universalism. Paul is not saying that all men are reconciled to God, whether they will repent and believe or no. All you have to do is read a little bit further in this letter and get to chapter 3, verse 6, to see that Paul is, is no universalist. He is very clear that the wrath of God is coming upon sons of disobedience. But what this does mean, obviously, is that Christ accomplishes the redemption for his people, 
Those who repent and believe, he makes peace with God for them by his blood, which is shed on the cross. And in reconciling fallen mankind to God, Christ also reconciles fallen creation to God. Another way of saying that would be to say that it is through Christ, Christ's atonement and Christ making all things new, that the curse is removed. And so we read in Revelation chapter 22, verse 3, in that picture of the new heavens and the new earth, and we're told there, there will no longer be any curse. The curse which came, Genesis 3, is removed. And it's removed through Christ. And therefore, we read in Romans 8, 19 through 22, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who, who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the bondage of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Because of the sin of mankind, the creation itself was subjected to futility, brought into the slavery of corruption. Just think of the old hymn, change and decay in all around I see. Right, this, is, this is the fallen order. This is, this is creation groaning. And right now, creation is groaning, anticipating the day when the curse will be gone and will be gone for good, never to return. If I can borrow the words of, of one writer, Christ has reconciled all things to God as well as the things that be in earth, as the things that are in heaven. Men, he is peculiarly redeemed by taking away their sins and the wrath of God occasioned by sin. The fabric of the world, metaphorically redeemed, in delivering it from the bondage to corruption and restoring it to its native purity and beauty when the fullness of the time shall come, according to the de- declaration, Second Peter 3.13, we look for a new heaven's and a new earth, according to his promise. So the point here is, Jesus is supreme. Paul has made this point quite clearly. So what do we do with this? Supremacy of Christ. Well, for one, we must worship Jesus. He is God. We must worship him. He is our creator. We must submit to him as our head. He is the head of the body, the church. We must worship and serve Christ as our redeemer, the one who has made peace for us by the blood of his cross and has gone ahead of us as our forerunner in being raised from the dead. He's the firstborn of the dead. We must honor Christ as the great one who has come and will remove the curse at long last. And we must therefore seek no other Savior or no other way of salvation or nothing even to supplement Christ's way of salvation because Christ lacks nothing. Christ is supreme. Christ is sufficient. And so let us say, I have no longings for another. I'm satisfied in Him alone. Let's give all praise and glory to Christ our Redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we praise you tonight for... The glories of Christ, and though we have uh, just briefly considered marvelous words, words which we can speak and understand to some degree, but words which we will one day 
understand much more fully than anything we can imagine now. We are thankful to you, O Father, for sending your Son into the world, uh, for sending him who is your image to be incarnate, so that we might be restored to your image. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us, that we would submit to Christ, that we would love him, that we would honor him, that we would allow nothing to supplant him in our hearts, in our lives, or in our affections. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.